This sermon is brought to you by Buford Road Baptist Church. The speaker today is Pastor Tony Cahoot. All right, let's turn to Revelation chapter 5 and get to work here. And while you're turning, I want to comment on something that Brother David just read uh, in the story of uh, Gideon. I, I don't know how many times you have read that story and how much of it that you are familiar with uh, to where you feel like you know the in and outs. And some people are like familiar with the story of David and Goliath and Jonah and the whale and uh, those Samson and Delilah. And you can go on and on with those kind of of uh, f- familiar stories. Gideon uh, is a story that we're familiar with, and I think probably the most significant thing about his uh, his ministry. You remember he was at the <clears throat> wine press threshing wheat, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, "Hey, I got a I got a job for you." And his response, probably one of the most classic responses in all of the scripture, he said, he said, who am I? Basically, he answered the same way as Moses did. But he said, who am I? He said, I'm the least in my father's house and my family's poor in Manasseh. You could not possibly be talking about this Gideon. So we're familiar with, with, I think, most of us tonight with that aspect of it, the story of the fleece and so forth. But the interesting thing that he read tonight, and I want to visually give you a description of this because you may not realize the significance of what uh, the instructions of God were to him about trimming down the thousands of men he had to what is called his mighty 300. I have been to Gideon's Brook, and uh, I've had the opportunity to uh, to visit, not only visit that place, but to speak in that place. And But this, let me show you something, if I can get up. I might have to have some help here. But when his men got down to the brook, this was the instruction. And this is why. This is the significant part of it. I want to, I want this to stay with you for a while. God said, whoever, whoever the men were that got down and began to, and the brook is before them, and began to drink out of the water like this. God said, send those boys home. But he said this. He said, those guys that began to lap the water in their hand and drink out of it, he said, those are the boys I want you to keep. Now, there's a significance. There's a reason for that. And the point that God was trying to convince or get across to Gideon was this. Those men, they were all, they were all armor bearers. They all had armor. They were all fit and dressed for the battle. Every single one of them. What you need, brother? Stay close. So he said this, this was the thing, they were all equipped for the battle. They all had spears, they all had swords, but here was the deal. When those soldiers decided they were going to get down and drink the water like this, here's what they had to do. They had to lay their spear down and they had to lay their sword down. 
God said, that's not the kind of crowd I need in this, in this battle. So he said this. Those soldiers who had their spear in their hand and they began to drink the water, they were vigilant of their surroundings. And so God said, those... Thank you, brother. He said, those boys are the ones I want you to keep. So if, you know, like I said, in studying the Revelation, you have to, you have to put the magnifying glass on the scriptures and you have to pick out these words. And so if you're not familiar with that aspect of what God was looking for in the military conflict, uh, I appreciate it every time I'm refreshed in my scripture reading of the story because it reminds me of those real significant details that matter. And that's one. That's just like, why did David take five smooth stones from the brook? If there was only one giant, that's because Goliath had four brothers. So those things are very significant to me. And I hope in your study, you come across those details. You get a blessing out of it. All right, let's get to work, class. And uh, in Revelation chapter 5, I'm going to read verse 1 that brings us to verse 2 where we left off last week. And I do hope you have something to write on. we got a lot of scripture to cover tonight, as time permits. All right. By the way of introduction, let me refresh your mind. The world has been exposed to many, many dark, dark cults throughout the process of time, and more so in modern time, just because for the lack of time, um, I'm going to mention a few of them. Back in the 60s, there was a cult that was called the Moonies. You recall hearing anything about the Moonies? Sung Young Moon was a Korean that um, pretty much declared himself to be the Messiah. And he had, he had people primarily in Los Angeles, California, but it was sweeping the country. And, and these young people, he would, he, it was in the hippie movement. And he would, he would be able to, from Korea and uh, other countries, but infiltrate the United States. And he would have these masses of young people out on the street corner, and they would sell these little red poppies, flowers. And it was a calling card. It was a gimmick to attract people. Uh, and the world was uh, captivated by him during the 60s. And then all of you remember in the 70s, there was the cult leader, Jim Jones, who led almost a 1,000 people to the Guyana-Jonestown jungle where almost a 1,000 of them committed suicide. And then there was um, David Koresh in uh, Waco, Texas, and he had a big following as well. 
so the world has been introduced to um, many, many different cult-type leaders. In the Waco, Texas situation, David Koresh, who was the leader of the Davidianites, he he had taken the scriptures, so his thing was revelation, by the way. And this is what he had cooped up these people in Waco, Texas, prior to the FBI disastrous, uh, led by Janet Reno, if you recall, um, disastrous situation. Um, but his thing was the seven sealed books of Revelation. That's what he was all about. And he had so grossly taken it out of context. And I don't have time tonight to spend there. But So when we come to chapter 5, we are talking about the seven sealed books. And I want to try my best to keep it in context for you. Again, I know a lot of great wonderful, godly, well-trained, scholared scholars and theologians, commentators, that some of which hold positions that I agree and some could be and some where I have another point of view. So I give it to you like I know it and like I study it. But again, chapter 5 puts us into this seven-sealed book uh, discussion. All right. So in chapter five, verse one, and I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne, a book written and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. Now, let me say this um, as we get into chapter 5, that the earth, as I have mentioned uh, in the opening comments tonight in the study, I think the earth has been full of heroic adventurers. Probably two of the historical adventurers, heroic adventurers, that I would say 95% of us tonight are familiar with is Alexander the Great, as well as Napoleon. Napoleon stood on the, on the crevices of the Valley of Jezreel, which is where the Battle of Armageddon will be fought in the Holy Land, and he stood there and he said this, he said the Valley of Jezreel, in his opinion, was geographically positioned to be the greatest battlefield of all the ages. And he had some prophecy there that I don't know that he really understood. But we could go down a list tonight and summarize some of the great heroic adventurers of all time. And I think those two would probably be on a list, a short list of five. Now, as we think about brave, heroic, adventurous people 
who were leaders in such a way that they led massive armies in their day. When I read verse number two, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book? Now, I want you to look at this carefully because I think that perhaps if Alexander the Great was given the proposition of this question, maybe perhaps he would have taken a step back and he would say something like this. I'll do it. I'll do it. And maybe Napoleon would have drawn his saber. If the question came to him, who is worthy, who can open this book? Maybe he would say, I would do it. But I want you to look at this. This is very significant. The question, if you read it as it as it states in verse number two, who is worth? It doesn't say who's willing. A lot of people would say, I'll do it. Maybe they would look around and say, you know, nobody else is doing it. I'll do it. But it doesn't ask the question who is willing to do it. The question is very precise, and that is who is worthy to do it? That's... That's an entirely different question. Who is worthy to open this book? Now, verse number three, look at this. This is solemn. And no man in heaven nor earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. When you go down the list of great people, even of Scripture, that means this. Neither Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and we could go right on down the list according to the Word of God when this question is asked, who's worthy? And the answer is no man in heaven nor earth nor under there. There's absolutely nobody. Out of all of these great patriarchs, out of all of the great people that are listed in heaven's hall of fame, no one is worthy. So this is a frightening situation for John. I think there's there's probably uh, a state of mind or heart or emotion to where almost heaven is paralyzed momentarily. And so in verse number four, the Bible says, and John is speaking, and he said, I wept much. Now, we talk about sometimes crying crocodile tears over stuff. John, he said, I wept much. Maybe some of you know what it's like to weep uncontrollably when you're overwhelmed with emotion, where you cannot get your breath that, that's happened to me on a few occasions. I was telling somebody today that probably one of the greatest life lessons that I learned over the years, that I have learned over the years in the ministry is this, that the ministry is one of the cruelest things 
that I have ever experienced in my life. That might sound to be a little strange, especially if you think that the ministry is about preaching, praying, singing, and going home, which I was under the false impression in my early, I mean, in my early days, I wanted to charge hell with a squirt gun, and I would have done it. But I will tell you, the ministry is cruel. And the reason why it's cruel is because the ministry is about people. Now, the Bible's not cruel. Songs are not cruel. But people are cruel. And what I have found out in my ministry is this, that sometimes the people you do the most for will hurt you the worst. And there have been times in my ministry where I have done exactly, I've sat at my desk and I have wept. I've wept in my home. I've wept at this altar. I have wept in my office. I can remember on one occasion where I felt like my heart was ripped out of my chest cavity. And one of my dearest friends on the earth during that particular season was Dr. Jerry Falwell. And on one instance, I called him. I couldn't speak hardly. I couldn't even get the message to the secretary with clarity. And... All I remember about that specific season in my life, I asked the secretary, I said, would you please tell Dr. Falwell to call me tonight? I said, I'll be in my office. I'll be by the phone at 9 o'clock. And I'm telling you, and I was weeping uncontrollably. And I was looking at my watch and at nine o'clock on the dot, Dr. Jerry Falwell called me. He said, Brother Tony. Did you think about that? What a soothing voice. And a dear friend. I know what it's like. Maybe you do. Maybe, maybe you know what it's like to have your life paralyzed in such a way to where it, you, you cannot speak. Maybe you cannot pray. Maybe, maybe your heart is ripped out in such a way where you, you can't even make clarity with Scripture. All you can do is weep. But I will tell you this, when we are lost for words and we cannot, we cannot articulate the words that we want to say, the Spirit of God. The Bible says that the Spirit of God makes intercessions for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. So sometimes when we don't even know how to pray, the Spirit of God prays for us. In this situation, I don't know of a better illustration that I could give you. When you read where John says, and I wept much, this is, this, listen, he's not having a pity party. It, he, it, this is not, this is not a little thing. The scripture says, he, and John is testifying, he said, I wept much. 
And when I read that, this is one of those additional things where you put the microscope over the Scripture and say, Holy Spirit, show me something I've never seen before. And this is what I saw in the Scripture, and that is this. This may very well have been the first time, maybe the only time, that a man has wept in heaven. Now you think about that. The Bible says, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, there should be no more death, and there's sorrow, no crying, neither shall there be any more pain for the former things that passed away. Yeah, there'll be tears that God wipes away. But listen, this may, John said, I wept much. This may be the first, this may be the only time up until this point that a man has ever wept in heaven. Now I want you to picture this. Here, here is standing the aged apostle. And he's, he's standing among the, the grandeur of heaven. And he's weeping. And he's weeping because no one was found worthy to open the book, the seven sealed book. All right. Now look at verse number five. And one of the elders saith unto me, weep not, weep not, John. Hold on. Get, Compose yourself. Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. All right? And so as soon as one steps up to speak, one of the elders, perhaps he even helps John. Maybe, maybe he even walks up to John, and I don't know. I'm positive they don't have Kleenex in heaven, but whatever he walked up to John with, to dampen perhaps the tears, and maybe he's even helping him. The elder pointed out this instance because it, it suddenly changes again. But here, for this moment, when this elder begins to speak to John about weeping, hold on, John, hold on, stop, wait a minute. The elder, look at this, he pointed not to a lamb. He pointed to a lion. And that's significant. So here in this text, now it does change very quickly here, but here Jesus is referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And this goes all the way back to Genesis, by the way. In Genesis chapter 49 and verse number 10, the Bible says, the skeptic shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver, from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Shiloh. This is, this is a reference to the Messiah. Now, here in that prophecy, 
Jacob prophesied that the tribe of the royal dynasty of Israel, Judah, as you read in the scripture here, that he would rule as a lion and he would be from the tribe of Judah. Now, this lion that our attention switches to in verse number 5 of Revelation 5, this lion is the glorified Son of God, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in this passage, he is also in reference to the root of David. That's significant because in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse number 1, the Bible says, And there shall come out or shall come forth out of the stem of Jesse. That's talking about the root of David. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. And in verse 10, the word says, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse. Now, the root of David, that's what it's talking about. Jesse, obviously his father, which shall stand for an assign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And so here, the prophet Isaiah, he foretold how the branch, the Messiah, the king, would someday sprout forth from the root of Jesse or David. And so in verse number five of Revelation 5, it was Jesus who had conquered death, the world, sin, and the devil. It was Jesus through his shed blood on the cross. And only he had the power and the authority to take the book and loose the seven seals. Only Jesus was worthy to do that. John has great consolation. Now in verse number six, look at this. John said, and I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. Now, in the previous verse, verse number five, John is talking about a lion. Now he's talking about a lamb, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. So John reverts back to the description of Jesus as a lamb slain. Now, let me give you a couple of verses. If you're writing, this will be helpful to you as you go back and re-encounter some of these descriptions uh, when you're you're reviewing uh, verse number five and six, because Jesus is definitely referred to as a lamb. And by the way, in the Old Testament, there is two references of that. One, Isaiah chapter 53 And verse number seven, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. And then in Jeremiah chapter 11, verse number 19, but I was like a lamb 
or an ox that is brought to the slaughter. And I knew not they, that they had devised devices against me, saying, let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that is, uh, that his name may be no more remembered. All right? So there are two instances, particularly in the Old Testament, as well as two references in the New Testament one of which is John 1.29. John was baptizing at the Jordan. And the scripture says, The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God. This is probably one of the most familiar that we are acquainted with, which taketh away the sin of the world. And then in verse 36, the scripture says, And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. So there are two references in the Old Testament. There are two references in the New Testament. And then there is one in Acts chapter 8 and verse number 32. Uh, The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so he openeth not his mouth. And so, and then one in the epistles, in First Peter chapter 1 and verse number 19, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So again, this is a Bible study. This is not a sermon. Uh, this is not a Sunday school lesson. This is a Bible study. Keeping that in mind, John makes mention of Jesus as a lion, and then he makes mention of Jesus as a lamb. Two references as Jesus as a lamb in the Old Testament, two references in the New Testament, one in the book of Acts, and then one in the epistles. And so beaming, I think, brightly off of the face of Jesus was the reflection of his substitutionary Death. What do I mean by his substitutionary death or his vicarious substitutionary death? What do I mean by those uh, uh, theological words? And that is simply this, that Jesus Christ took our place on the cross. He died in my place. He died in your place. He became our vicarious substitute. But he is referred to in this particular scripture as a lamb. Now, let me rehearse this one more time for you because it's significant. He's referred to the lamb, him being a lamb, twice in the Old Testament, twice in the New Testament, one time in the book of Acts and one time in the epistles. But he is referred to as a lamb 28 times in the book of Revelation. And that's, that's significant. Okay. But the fact that he saw Jesus alive, this is spectacular and it's significant because seeing Jesus alive clearly speaks of his resurrection. It testifies of his resurrection and it also testifies of his ascension. Now, looking a little closer at verse number six, and I've got to close with this scripture tonight, and that is this, John saw the lamb having seven horns. Now, this is interesting when we study this scripture because lambs do not typically have horns. But John, describing Jesus, he mentions that 
this lamb, the Lord Jesus, this, he had seven horns. And so throughout the scripture, this is what you need to remember, that horns are a symbol of power and authority. Horns are a symbol of power and authority. So seven horns, seven eyes could be, when I study this, it could be a metaphor pointing to the Lord's perfect knowledge and omniscience. But all of it points to the seven spirits, which we have already studied coming out of the book of Isaiah. But let me give this to you real quickly here. Revelation 1.4, the Bible says, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is, which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. And in chapter 3 and verse number 1, and unto the angel of the church in Sardius, these things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. And then in chapter 4 and verse number 5, and out of the throne proceed lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And so as we have already seen, this, of course, is in reference to the ministries of the Holy Spirit. So we need to stop here tonight. Um, these are significant passages of Scripture, and we have successfully uh, got through verses 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. Um, again, these are going to be very deep Scriptures, very deep subject matter, and you have to really pay attention, take really good notes. You won't get it on the first go. I promise you that. Uh, I, I have been studying this book for over four decades, and I will tell you that even now today there are still mysteries and things I do not clearly understand. But it's my goal, careful goal, methodical goal, prayerful goal, that I, I don't willfully take it out of context, that you, you have the best benefit of understanding uh, from, from my teaching. So uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll get into verse uh, number seven. Well, it's been a great study. Amen. Praise the Lord. Not always long enough, but we give God the praise. You listen to Pastor Tony Cahoot. For more information, Visit our website at BufordRoadBaptistChurch.com.